Hi, I'm Emma Lagan, a graduate student in the Anthropology Department at The Ohio State University. Thank you for joining us for Episode 3B, A Story of Us, Our Humanity, History, and Department. As always, this podcast is produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association. And today, I'm joined by Katie Markline and Melissa Clark, two graduate students in our department. Welcome, both of you. Would you like to introduce yourselves? I'm uh, Melissa Clark. I'm a PhD candidate at The Ohio State University in the Department of Anthropology, and I study post-medieval Ireland and dental stress indicators. Um, I'm Katie Markline, and I am a graduate candidate as well, and I'm looking at Roman imperialism through the lens of bioarchaeology in northern Turkey for my dissertation. So basically Romans and Greeks, I tend to like skeletons in particular. My work in, in Turkey actually isn't looking at childhood. Uh, I think we really, they brought us together today to mention some work that I'd done previously, basically looking at childhood and kind of how we approach it through bioarchaeology. I think one of the issues, at least, uh, we find as bioarchaeologists or just really anyone studying children in general, especially children in the past, is we really don't know how to think of them or actually define them. I don't know if you've had that problem with some of your work. Yeah, like, mm mm-hmm. You can't really, it's hard to define what is an infant versus a fetus versus a young child and an adolescent. Yeah, and I think we'll just, um, in general, well, looking at children in the past is kind of a new phenomenon for the most part because Mm -hmm. as people who are kind of digging up skeletons find is you don't really find children as often as you would with the mortality patterns you expect because the the bones are so much more frail and oftentimes they're kind of swept away or destroyed during excavations. So it's only really recently that we've been looking at them and then and kind of trying to understand children in the past versus children in modern days and how we think about childhood. Uh, Thinking about them in these stages are these stages we've constructed. So, you know, fetus, uh, neonate, newly born, infant, child, you know, are these constructs we have and we're just kind of imposing them on the past or is there something of value there? At least that's something I definitely struggle with when I'm trying to think about children in the past when I'm um, looking at specific collections. Yeah, and one thing I think that we also uh, take for granted in our society is that we view children as people. And (laughs) How um, dare we do that? I know. (laughs) Like agents in their own way. (laughs) Yeah, and I'm not sure that is always necessarily the case. So um, I know that it's been previously argued that in instances where the infant mortality is extremely high, that perhaps there was an element of detachment from the child and it wasn't necessarily perceived as a full person. But I think also we need to consider that that might just be, again, a construction that we're placing on to these people that they couldn't possibly have grieved for like their dying children because there were just so many of them. I think that perhaps we also need to consider the possibility that they they did care for these children. Yeah, I so I don't have any children myself, but I mm-hmm. am a new aunt, and so I get to see how she's kind of constructing her identity and how also she's influencing my my brother and sister-in-law as well as as a little person and how mm. her life how their lives are shaped around her. And so it's yeah, I'm trying not to think and assume that behavior and those those cultures on the past as well. But also not going to that extreme of, oh, we have so many children, let's not, and they all die, so let's not think about them or care about them. Right, and it's not, I think, just a matter of caring about the child. I think it's also um, a renegotiation of identity of yourself as a person. So like, once you have a child, like that's a new aspect of your identity, right? So your uh, brother is now a father in addition to being your brother. So there's different parts of 
your identity that are affected by the birth or death of a child. Right. And I guess I think about, especially with kind of mortuary archaeology and bioarchaeology, which we both study, in terms of children, their, their identity, I think so much of it is negotiated and and created based on um, how those children are buried. And I think how we interpret them is based on how they're found, how they're they're cared about after death as yeah, well. Absolutely. Because like, I like to think of it as like you don't bury yourself. So your burial circumstances are going to be a product of how people perceive you. And so if you are buried with lots of grave goods, then perhaps that might indicate that people really did care about you. Right. That this assumption or that some comes back and um, and is you know giving offerings or so. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, there's that assumption, though, if you don't bring them, they, there was no value, unfortunately. there's those There can be that misinterpretation as well. Yeah, and that's something we see particularly in Ireland, where two-thirds of the population was essentially impoverished in the post-medieval period. And it's been argued that because there's an, a general lack of grave goods in these burial grounds, they're called Killini in Irish, um, because there's a general absence of grave goods, then it's been suggested that parents didn't mourn for their deceased children. But other anthropologists have argued that the absence of grave goods and the absence of inscribed tombstones is really just a product of mass illiteracy and uh, poverty where people didn't have anything to leave in the graves of their child. Like most ethnographies of the time, they describe Irish homes as having like a stool and a pot, and those are your only two possessions. Which so, you like, will not bury with your child. Which hopefully. you will not with, bury with your child because you, you, need, you need them. them. <laughs> right. So, yeah, I definitely think it's important to remember that just the absence of grave goods isn't necessarily indicative of an absence of care. Right, that's true. And at least so with some of the the burials or the context I'm familiar with, again, as Roman and Greek, is there are instances where they actually do have grave goods interred with them. And then there's the issue of trying to understand what these grave goods mean. And like there are some cases where children are buried with toys or that, or people presume these were toys that were used by the child. And so they're kind of capturing the innocence of them in in those tender years. And um, But then there are also instances where individuals are buried with goods that they would have used later on in life had they lived into those adult years. And it's they're not necessarily mourning the life that was lost, but the life that was going to be, and that, that one that was ultimately lost. Um, so I think there's a lot to be gained there, at least in terms of the mortuary context. But some of you were mentioning is, and sometimes they're not buried with items. Are there specific areas where the children are, are buried, at least in Ireland? Mm-hmm. Where that's Because yeah. like in Greece and Rome, often children will be buried intramurally, so within the walls of, of a city or sometimes within the walls of a home. Sometimes thought to be a protective mechanism, something that's like apotropaic, or sometimes it's just there out of pragmatism. You have nowhere else to bury the child. Um, so at least that's kind of the case often that you see there's a an actual location to, and there's some some meaning in that, at least in Roman times as well. I don't know if that's the case in Ireland. Uh, yeah, it is. But first, I actually want to touch on the um, the burials of infants in Rome, um, perhaps in the houses. I think that there have been a couple of different interpretations for why that might be, like you said. And uh, one is, is it like the most practical place to bury your child? Or then you also, I think, have to consider the possibility that perhaps the parents wanted the child close to them. I've been reading a number of ethnographies talking about um, the par- parental reactions to child death. And one of the things that the parents keep saying is, I don't want my child to be away from me. And I think that perhaps that's um, a possible interpretation 
for the infant remains in Rome. Now, as far as the burial locations in Ireland, they're pretty interesting because they show a maintenance of sacred space over time. So Mm -hmm. after the advent of the Church of Ireland, so once Protestantism came about, they had a rule that, well, basically they argued that an unbaptized child could not go to heaven. And because it wasn't baptized, it wasn't allowed to be buried in an active church cemetery. But parents often got around this by burying their children on prehistoric sites, uh, so like hills and mounds and things. They also used disused graveyards, which were very common after the dissolution of the monasteries. So they would um, bury their children on these previously well-maintained sacred sites. I was actually about to ask, so so some of the mounds and stuff, mm-hmm. were they were there often people buried there already? Yes. Okay, so there's always some kind of association with yes. sacred space. There's people there yeah. already. Yeah, and in some of the mounds, you know, there's continuity with the belief that those were like the, the thrones of the high priests of Ireland. And so it's a very prestigious place to actually bury your child, and it's not this perceived liminal yeah. space that people have argued it is. Another interesting place they buried uh, children was beneath fairy trees. They're significant because, like, the fairies live live under the fairy tree. And if you dig up a fairy tree, then the fairies will come and, like, steal your children and things. So uh, a good idea is if you want your child to be buried in a safe place is to bury it under a fairy tree because you know the fairy tree will never be dug up. And one of the stories that we often hear uh, working in Ireland is that they would bury them close to the wall of the church uh, because the rainwater would come off the roof and continually baptize the child. So it's holy water once it's touched, like the church. Mm -hmm. I feel like I've heard that before. Yeah. Yeah, and that was a practice that only ended with the Second Vatican Council in 1962. So there's a very strong living memory of this practice in Ireland. Oh, that's nice. So then you can kind of go back to the modern-day ethnographies as well, kind of for the living children, people losing their children in that association. Yeah, and there's still sort of this sense of protection over the children. For example, I work at a disused monastery that was changed into a killing. So people would bury their, their deceased children there. And we were excavating some skeletons, and they were the local people were asking, like, aren't you afraid the black fairies are going to come get you? Because there's still this, there's a very strong folklore element, but there's also this sense of protection over the children who might have died within living memory. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. So I know you said that um, the the children in Rome were often buried under the floors of houses and things. Yeah, that's the case sometimes. Yeah. And well, that's one of the explanations for oftentimes why you don't find children in burial grounds oftentimes. Athens in particular in classical times and kind of pre-classical times doesn't have the best reputation, I guess you might say, for deposits of children. They're not really in association with graveyards, and often those that are are associated with really wealthy individuals. So there are cases where you have individuals who are left in wells, potentially children who didn't make it very long. So children were dumped in some of the wells there. There was no water, of course, in the wells. Okay, that was my next question. (laughs) Just like look of terror on his face right now. Ah, No, no one was drinking the water from the baby wells. Um, But there's also, and while that sounds kind of horrible, at the same time, they've also found evidence of kind of ritualistic sacrifices of um, dogs and and other grave goods have been deposited. So even though these uh, some of the children may have kind of been disposed of in what may seem haphazard and 
I don't know, a careless way, some might argue, there's actually some ritual element to it. So there is some care, even for maybe potentially lower classes who mm. didn't have the means to to inter their children with the family or with the gravestone. Right. And I think maybe in that case, the well is perhaps a landmark location where they would know to go oh, to yeah. to remember their child. So again, going back to Ireland, after the uh, introduction of the penal laws in the 17th century, it was illegal for Catholics to go to school. So this resulted in a really widespread illiterate population. And if you're illiterate, there's like no point in having an inscribed tombstone, right? Because you're not going to be able to read it. Yeah. And uh, so what they would do is they would use like stones and uh, sticks and things to mark the space where their child was buried. And I think maybe perhaps it's a possible interpretation for the use of the wells that like this was a site they knew and could go to to eventually go back yeah yeah in other cases in rome where they start to have uh, children buried for the most part uh those that are buried at least roman times so we're jumping a few centuries ahead now (laughs) um the children are often buried again in association with the family and there may be there's actually there are words actually attributed to them so people will talk about their dear children and again it's in light of them being lost kind of in light of losing um, not just a child but potentially a citizen and uh, at least with Rome and with the Emperor Augustus coming in there were laws really promoting people having children and subsidies so this idea that children are not only carriers of your DNA and your family line but they're also carriers of a culture and an empire at least in this case as well and so in that case sometimes you're starting to get some more elaborate gravestones you might have kind words for some of these children who are lost the lost citizens it's interesting how child burials can be used in that regard as well. It's not only just personal or grieving or for something for parents to come back to, but it's also children as a sign of the future and prosperity and sometimes something larger than the family. Yeah, I think that's particularly important in like a nation state like like Rome, where you are relying on the children to continue the existence of your race. You need to have more people or they die out. Yeah, Yeah, ultimately. This is a little bit of a tangent, but I remember uh, reading about a father in Rome whose wife, their their child died. And he was writing this really long and beautiful letter to his his wife about um, how he felt about the child dying. So I think Maybe we should consider that there's like um, an aspect of public uh, grief, so the loss of a child for the perpetuation of the society, but then also a little bit of a private grief too, where you're mourning the child that you had, the attachment that was previously there. But yeah, there are very few instances of of children being mourned in that way because the idea was it was something very personal. Mm-hmm. Those personal uh, feelings that you have for a child cannot be publicized. Uh, you know, you're not going to go and orate about them at the forum. That would not be, that would be definitely untoward. But instead, again, just thinking about them and what they could have been, the adults, and how that that just kind of works into all aspects of their society. You see it on in their their monuments throughout throughout Rome, the Empire. It's the Empire embodied in you know the innocence of a child that will ultimately become this ideal citizen. I was exploring the idea of private versus public grief. Um, so my project was on the inclusion of fetal burials in the archaeological record and whether or not parents in the past might have mourned when they like had a stillborn child and the issue of public versus private grief came up where even in today's society, like it's not seen as a legitimate cause of public bereavement when you suffer a pregnancy loss. And I think 
it's interesting the dynamics between the public and private grief. Yeah, and how they're manifested. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they're yeah, permanently done so, yeah. Yeah, even today. Katie, Melissa, thank you so much for joining us today. I think you both contributed a lot to what we talked about in our content episode for 3A. To all of our listeners, thank you for joining us today. Before you go, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and like us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at A Story of Us OSU, or check out our website, anthropology.osu.edu. Also, don't forget to leave a review of the show. Remember, the more reviews we have, the easier it is for people to find the show and fall in love with it just like you did. We hope you join us next time for episode 4A as we continue to explore a story of us, our humanity, history, and department. Oh, my God.